Notice the picture up on the screen, and you'll notice two dates. It's important to note every single one in this room has the date we entered the world, right there on the left. That's the date you were born. And every one of us, every one of us, has another date. That one on the right is yet to be completed. But trust me, it will. Now, obviously, we don't have much control over those two numbers, do we? Not really. I didn't choose to get born. I didn't choose uh, to be an American. I didn't choose to be born to Betty and Luke Godwin. I didn't choose anything. Uh, they didn't ask my permission if, if I could come. They, I'm here. So uh, I reckon nobody's going to ask me when I'd like to leave either. People ask me sometimes, what do you want people to say at your funeral? I'd like somebody to stand, scream, and say, look, he's moving. <laughs> now, I'm not big into that dying, but it will occur. But in between that date on the left, that's the day of your arrival, and the day you'll leave planet Earth, there's that little dash. Everybody see it? And what that little dash represents is mine and your life. And as small as that little dash seems, all of our living, all of our loving, all of our growing, all of our challenges, all of our accomplishments, all of our efforts, all of our friendships need to be crammed into that one little dash. And yet everything that is written there on that dash is about the only thing you have mostly control over. I do. You do. So the question I want to ask you this morning as we get started is, what are you going to do with your dash? We all get one, but only one. Wise people have reflected on this for a long, long time. And you have to, because our lives go by so fast. I mean, some of you in your 40s look young to me. You know, when you're up in the 70s, everybody's young. And you never thought you'd ever be there, but hey, welcome, welcome to senior citizens. Here we are. So David says this in Psalms 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days correctly that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so what the psalmist is asking here is for God to show him how to live those days, however many there are, wisely. So I've got about 364 days to squander or live wisely. The choice is completely mine. So let me start by asking you another question. What do you think is the most dangerous object in your home? One philosophy professor wrote an entire book on risk, and he devoted one whole chapter to household risk. Now, some of them are pretty much what you'd expect. Kitchen knives, for instance, injure about 460,000 people every year. Manual and power saws account for 100,000 injuries every year, which is why even though I have them, I'm strongly encouraged by those who know me best, never ever turn them on, Rick. But other household hazards kind of surprise me. You know, every year, 20 people in America are strangled by drapery cords. Not only in that, the author of the book, Larry Loudon, this professor, makes the claim, and I quote directly from his book, Annually, some 4,000 of us are seriously injured on pillows. How does that happen? Unless it's the godfather pushing a pillow down over your face. 
and then firing into it, I don't know. So let me ask you, what do you think is the most dangerous object in your house? Let me show you what I think might be the most dangerous object in your house. Take a look at the screen and right here on stage. This is a chair, but not just any chair. It's a special chair. It's called a lazy boy. It's not called risky boy. It's not called worker boy. Oh, no. It's lazy boy, the most popular chair in America. Now, we don't buy a chair like this so we can sit upright at a computer. We buy it for one reason only, comfort. We love comfort. And for those of you that have a chair like this in your home, what's the one object you got to be holding when you're in that chair? Well, besides a cold beer, probably the remote, yeah. <laughs> now, I want you to take a good look at our picture again. Does that look like somebody ready to jump into action, poised for an explosive growth and development, somebody who's ready to suffer for another person in need, and if God were to ask that person, him or her, to do a real difficult thing right now, you think they're ready for the job? I don't think so. So what about our own lives? If your life was primarily devoted to life in that chair, to maximizing your level of comfort, minimizing any kind of stress or problem, if that was the primary purpose of your life, would that jack you up and make, you, make your heart pump? Is that enough to make you jump out of bed every morning with anticipation and wonder? Let me tell you what I think is so dangerous about life in the chair. It's not what you do while you're in the chair. It's what you don't do while you're in the chair. It's the relationships you never deepen. It's the people in need you never even see. It's the great, desperate, needy, urgent prayers you never pray. It's the noble thoughts that you never think. It's the races you never run. It's the battles you were made to fight that you never fight. The laughter you don't laugh, the tears that you never cry. It's the great adventure of life with God that you were made for. You never go on. You didn't even show up. See, you were made for something more than just life in that stinking chair. We're all made to do something more with our lives than just try to secure or maximize comfort and security. You, you were made to spend your life in a risky partnership with a dangerous God. That's why this chair might be the most dangerous object in your house. By the way, I got this from Nathan. I tried to get him to sit in it for me, but he would not do it. Okay. And I'm not saying you need to hop out of your lazy boy and go parachute out of an airplane or, you know, go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. It's really about making your ordinary life an adventuresome partnership with God. It's waking up in the morning and saying, no matter what your career or calling, God, what do you have for me to do today? What's on the agenda? I'll do it. And pretty much throughout the Bible, you see God calling people out, challenging his people to take on a particular assignment or some risky task. And what I've seen is that whenever God calls somebody, there, there's a pattern, and, and it always goes about the same way. So what I'd like to do in the time remaining is to walk us through five areas 
that seem to be present when God challenges his people. Challenge number one, that's the call. You know, God's asking somebody to do something. So let me ask you this. Can you think of where, anywhere in the Bible, God interrupts somebody's life and asks them to do something easy? You better read your Bible. When does God interrupt somebody's life and say, look, I got an assignment for you. Don't worry, it's pretty quick, it's easy, not much cost, not much demand attached to it. I haven't read it. See, you see, it doesn't happen like that. In fact, God rarely gives anybody an easy job. Just read Hebrews chapter 11, where you read about one person after another whose lives got interrupted by God, calling them to do something that would perm straight hair and straighten curly hair. Frightening, right? Are y'all okay? You gonna let that little bit of rain calm you down after all those football games last night? Come on. I know some of you out of this place. This is not the real you I'm looking at right now. This is the religious you. So God comes to a guy called Noah, and he says, Hey, Noah, I want you to build me an ark in the face of ridicule and restart the whole human race on earth. Say what? Yeah, and God comes to a guy called Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything familiar to you. I want you to go to another nation. I want you to immigrate. I'm going to show you when you get there. He went out not knowing where he's going. Let me try that, huh? No GPS coordinates there. Then God comes to a guy named Joseph, and he says, I want you to be faithful to me when you're betrayed by your brothers, you're falsely accused by a woman of assault, you're in prison, and you're a slave. So God comes to Moses, and he says, I want you to leave a life that's uh, very posh and comfortable and entitled, and go back to Egypt in order to defy the Pharaoh. Listen, more than anything else, I want you to know God does love you. He loves us intensely. He wants you to know him, to experience his grace and goodness and enjoy his presence forever. Okay, that being said, we need to realize God is not spending nearly as much time developing new ways of bringing comfort into our lives as we'd like him to. Sorry. It's so important that we understand this because we live in a world where comfort is one of the things we're most often encouraged to pursue. You know, to give our lives, to buy at any cost. And sometimes people will think about God like, I followed God, I said yes to God, and He didn't make my life so comfortable. He didn't give me all the things I wanted to feel safe and secure and well off. And they feel as though maybe there's something wrong with them or something wrong with God. But God never promised that. You've been watching too much Christian TV. When God calls people, it may be to something very much outside your comfort zone. So it starts with that challenging call. Number two, there's always, always a response. In every case, the person whose life God interrupts will express his or her initial reaction directly to God. And after God gives somebody a hard assignment, how often do you think that person responds anywhere in the Bible by saying, man, what a great opportunity. Defy Pharaoh, take on the Midianites, spend the night in the lion's den, walk into a fiery furnace, face rejection, flogging, chains, and prison. Wow, fabulous. What a great challenge. Merry Christmas. Thank you, God. Never do people respond like that. The response is almost always 
fear and inadequacy. Sometimes it's fear of inadequacy. God comes to a guy named Gideon. He says, hey, Gid, I want you to save my people from the Midianites. I want you to be the guy that leads them into battle. And look at Gideon's response to the call. God, how can I save Israel? My clan, my family is the weakest in the little tribe of Manasseh. I'm least in my family. I'm not adequate for this. I don't even have a GED. God, you don't know my family. It's dysfunctional. It's the most dysfunctional family in all of Manasseh, and I'm the lowest functioning person in my family. You talk about a bad self-image. This is the guy God's talking to. Sometimes it's fear of failure. God asked Moses to send out some scouts to explore the promised land he was going to give them. And then of that 12, 10 came back with great excitement and said, the land we explored devours all who live in it. It's huge. And the people we saw there were of a great size. They were giants. We were grasshoppers. We could never do it. We ought to go back home. We're going to fail. Now, they probably go to church. Yeah, who needs the devil when you got these kind of Christians around you? I mention this because sometimes people say things like, well, Rick, God would never ask me to do something that I couldn't handle. <laughs> really? Where'd you get that? Huh? You've been reading comic books. What? Really? No, to the contrary. He will never ask you to do something you can do without him. Yeah, without him, see? You see, in the Bible, when God calls somebody to do something, their initial response is almost always, they're scared to death. So if there's a challenge in front of you, a course of action, a road that you walk down, it would, that it would cause you to grow and be a blessing to people that are around you, but you're scared to do it, don't say no, because there's a great probability that God's in that challenge. And I'll go a step farther. If you're not facing any challenges too big for you in your life right now, and it's been a long time since you've been scared, it's really possible you've been in this chair too long. Yep, you got bed sores on your bottom side. What's in your heart to do? Maybe God's nudging you regarding the homeless. Maybe he's tugging at your heart to reach out to those with AIDS. We've supported the AIDS Foundation downtown. Or to share your faith with more people around you. Maybe you see the need for more Bible training. Is God telling you to step up to the plate? Maybe start a Bible study or teach a class or get yourself involved. Maybe you see the need for maybe community, relationship, and he's nudging you to start a connect group. I don't think I've ever done anything I felt adequate to do, ever. I mean, you wouldn't see it on the outside, but inside, I was feeling it. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm qualified to do this. This thing may fail. Those voices go off in everybody I know. So you're not the Lone Ranger, okay? You see, I've never known anybody who had a deep, risky, bold faith in God that led in an easy, comfortable, challenge-avoiding life. Ever. Ever. Because that chair does not build a faith worth having. It doesn't lead you into a life that's worth living. Nobody gets to the end of their life and looks back at time in this chair and says, man, were those great memories. Those were awesome days. No. So God calls, and almost always people are scared. 
people feel inadequate. Then number three, then God gives a promise. God gives some reassurance. You know, a, a striking thing about these stories of God calling people is that even though people almost always have an initial response of inadequacy, of fear, God never reacts to them by saying, well, George, I can see where this would be pretty scary, so never mind. Don't worry about it. I'll ask somebody else. See, God knows people get scared, and he makes a promise then. He says to Gideon, hey, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. He's hiding in a wine press. Mighty warrior, my foot. Are you kidding? This guy's got tons of issues. He's terrified. But God sees in us what we can become as we walk in his power, grace, and authority. Who would have ever seen that in Gideon? Right? Who would have seen in a hooker down in Jericho the messianic seed line coming through her womb? God loves to use what religious people despise. Yeah. God says to Joshua these magnificent words, have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous because you're going to need it. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And some of you need to write those words down and carry them with you all week wherever you go. I'm not doing this alone. God says, I will be with you. And when the big eye shows up, you and him are a majority. That's a fact. And again, it's very, very important you understand what these promises mean. They don't mean that if you follow God, nothing bad will ever happen to you. God never promises if you follow him, your life will be easy. You'll live in a gated community, a nice high-dollar zip code. You'll have a hot mate, and you'll have all the money in the world. Again, you've been watching some dumb TV programs. That is not the promise of God. All of us who follow Jesus follow in a way of faith for which countless people have given their lives. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul wrote to a young church in Rome. He said, I'm convinced that nothing, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, principalities, danger, nakedness, famine, sword, nothing is able to separate me from the love of God. Notice he doesn't say nothing is able to harm me because plenty of them died Nothing is able to separate me from the love of God. God calls somebody. The person's scared, feels inadequate. God gives a promise, a reassurance. I'll be with you. Number four. That leads us to this next component, which is the time of decision, where you need to decide what you're going to do or not do. Now, of course, you feel scared. You feel inadequate. You've, you've measured or counted the cost. You've considered how much time in the chair you're going to have to give up in order to do it. And even with God's promises, you still wonder if you could ever pull it off. Will it really work? In spite of what I'm sharing here, you're going to get a thought that said, God, why would you interrupt my life like this? I mean, for crying out loud, it was challenging enough without you putting this burden in my heart for people or for a need or an issue. But still, you'll have to give an answer one way or the other. You've got to respond. And as much as God really does care about how you're feeling about the challenge that he lays out in front of you, what ultimately matters is whether you'll say yes or no to God. That's what matters. What matters is whether we say yes to the challenge, yes to a life of adventure with God, 
I just lay down in the lazy boy chair. He was a good man. Never did anything. Never offended anybody. Never suffered any loss. Sure had a nice chair. Thank you, Nathan, for this chair. <laughs> but just remember, comfort never made anybody feel alive right down to the tip of their toes, and it never will. I mean, the most, the most crazy moments in my life have been out on the edge of danger. First time looking out of an airplane with a parachute and jumping at 15,000 feet, that'll give you a whoopee. Yeah, it won't look like Sunday morning at 1030. Yeah, that'll jack you up. Or climbing Mount Rainier with a 70-pound pack in 20 below zero. Yeah, that, there, there have been some incredible opportunities in my life are going to the bank with the team and uh, the board and to sign on a dotted line in 08 when the economy went in the tank for multi-multi-millions of dollars that, Lord God, how will we pay that? What if it doesn't work out? What if the economy of America keeps tanking? Let me tell you something. I don't live a low-risk life. And you're never going to have much fun if you do. Starting a business, making a capital investment for equipment or stuff. There's risk in it. Buying a house. Oh, dear Jesus, having kids. <laughs> I, went, I went in for a, 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 a shot for my, when I had rotator cuff surgery, the only surgery I ever had. The, the nurse said, now, this may hurt a little bit. I said, ma'am, come on. I'm married with kids. I can take lots of pain. <laughs> Stick it in there. You know what I'm, all you moms at least know what I'm talking about. So let me ask you, what's God put on your heart? What's he been challenging you to do in your life right now? You'd know. Maybe it involves a relational risk. Maybe it means telling the truth to somebody and you've been scared to say it. Maybe God's calling you to a different vocation. That's pretty wild. But you've been holding back because you're afraid. I want to leave the security of my paycheck for the possibility I could do better in this uh, other vocation or starting my own business. Maybe you're holding on to your money right now because you'd like to buy a more expensive lazy boy chair with a built-in massage unit. <laughs> Even though you know God's wanting you to help spread the kingdom or that teenager or something in a building project or help somebody go on a mission trip. Maybe God's asking you to explore some area where he's gifted you to be able to serve other people, but you've been holding back because you don't feel qualified. Well, get in line. I don't feel qualified either. Who do you think you are? I, I, I hope this thing fails quick so I can go back to what I would rather be doing, Lord. I'd rather be in the cockpit of an F-16 shooting down MiGs. I mean, but I got drafted. I didn't volunteer for something religious. Either that or if I could take 40 years off my life, I'd like to have a rock and roll career again. Well, it's more exciting than 10.30 in church. Okay. At least the people there were a little bit wild. A little bit excited, yeah. You know, I had a wildlife expert tell me one time, he says, Rick, you can tame a wild duck, but you can never make a tame duck wild again. And the problem with religion, it has tamed so many of you. It has calmed you down and just defrocked you and made you impotent and sterile. I'm speaking spiritually now. I mean, it has. It's like, what happened to the life? I, you were the life of the party. Well, why does that stop if Jesus becomes your Lord? If you're fun, I'm still fun. 
Now, I'm not going to get drunk, and I'm not going to do something criminal, but I, heck, I'm going to be fun. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. This church kind of scares me. Well, honey, honey, you just go back over there to the little sterile section and wear your little flower and your little boutonniere and let's put our robe on and let's play a little dirgy funeral music and let's do our little routine and it's safe. Nothing will happen, I promise you. Nothing will happen. Dumb. I mean, let the mule out of the barn occasionally, huh? Get a little bit, get a bit of fire in your belly or something. People without passion never build, do anything. Is there a fire in your belly? Light a match, you know? For some of you, there's a secret sin or a struggle nobody knows about, maybe an addiction or some pattern that's very embarrassing and destructive, and you've been scared to death somebody would find it out, so you've never gotten help. And the challenge for you would be, will you lay down that mask of pretense of saying, well, everything's okay. How are you doing? I'm fine. Would you come out of hiding in order to start that journey of healing? See, even God can't heal you and take care of you until you admit you got a problem. And I guarantee you in this place, I will never belittle you if you have a problem. I want to see you get well. I want to see you get into an AA program or some marriage recovery. I want to help you do well. I'm not embarrassed at all. The Bible says in Psalms 103, I think it's 103 or 113, I can't remember, if the Lord should mark iniquity, who could stand? Well, I'd leave Washington, D.C. out, everybody. I'd leave everybody in church out if he should mark iniquity because we're all iniquitous. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even in this broken world, the followers of Jesus, we're not intended to arrive at the end of our lives having carried this crushing burden of shame or guilt all the way through. Unload this sucker. It's going to take a real act of courage for you to say yes. But will you say yes? Get the help you need. Yeah, well, they'll think, they'll think, they'll think. Let me tell you, if you knew how little people did think about you, you would quit worrying about what people think about you. They don't think about you at all. That's a fact. So what is it for you? And what area is God asking you to get out of the chair, to say yes? And last, number five, I'll tell you why it matters so much. Because the fifth and final component of all of these stories of God calling people always ends up with a person's life being changed. Always. Both in the Bible and history. Every time somebody says yes to God, their world changes a little bit. So when we say yes to God, our faith gets a little deeper. Our courage gets a little stronger. Our light, you know, glows a little bit brighter. And when you say no... When God asks you to do something and you say no, well, your heart gets a little colder. You get a little hardness of hearing. Your heart gets a little hardened. And then your faith gets a little weaker. And you get a little more addicted to life in the chair. And it gets a little less likely you'll ever get out of it. Now, as I close, I want to introduce to you one of the greatest risk takers of the 20th century you've probably never heard of. Her name is Henrietta Mears. Take a look at her. Now, does that look like a tremendous risk taker to you? 
I mean, like a really bold, gutsy, Indiana Jones kind of a person? Henrietta. But she is. She's a single woman who developed a deep burden to teach children at her church in California the Bible. And it wasn't easy since she always had terrible vision. In fact, she had been told that she'd be blind by the time she reached 30 years of age. But in spite of all that, she went ahead and said yes to God. In the first two years teaching Sunday school, this is back in 1930, the number of students under her ministry grew from 400 to over 4,000, which was unheard of in those days. And yet she was frustrated at not being able to find good materials to help students learn about the Bible in a way that wasn't boring. So she started writing and printing her own stuff. In fact, other churches started coming to her and asking for copies of material. So in the garage of a good friend of hers, Henrietta Mears started Gospel Light Publications. And it grew into something nobody would ever have guessed. She wanted a retreat area where people, especially young people, could get out of the congested city, dial down, listen to God a little bit, and be close. In the 1930s, she found an area that would be perfect way up in the mountains of San Bernardino. Well, it was valued at that time at $350,000. But this was in the middle of the Depression. So that might as well have been millions. So she just started to pray, God, give me that mountain. This would be a good thing. This would bless people. God, give us that mountain. And she gathered a group of people and asked them to start praying. And she told them, like I'm telling you, you got to dream big where God is involved, not puny. And they ended up getting that property for 30 grand. And it became what's known as Forest Home Christian Center, if you want to Google it. And for well over 60 years, it's been changing the lives of thousands of people. In fact, a whole generation of Christian leaders were developed and mentored by this hat-wearing middle-aged woman who couldn't see. Dick Halverson, who would go on to become chaplain of the United States Senate, was one of her students. Bill Bright, who established Campus Crusade for Christ, was one of the millions of people she mentored. Billy Graham said of Henrietta, Henrietta Mears was one of the greatest Christians I have ever known. He said that apart from his mom and his wife, no woman ever had a stronger impact on his life. Now, if you go to Forest Home today, you can find around that lake a place where over 50 years ago, at a crisis in his life, after prolonged conversations with Henrietta Mears and a lot of prayer, Billy Graham knelt down and prayed to God, for the rest of my life, I will preach the Bible with a simple childlike faith. And ironically enough, nobody has produced leaders in the 20th century that shaped the church like old Henrietta. In fact, Christianity Today, uh, Christianity Today named her as one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. When she was on her deathbed in the hospital, when he was, she was facing her last day, somebody asked her, Henrietta, if you had to live your whole life over again, would you do anything differently? And Henrietta Mears looked back at her whole life, all she had done. She looked at all the lives she had changed. She looked at all the things that she had taught. She looked at all the risks she had taken, and she looked at all the bold prayers she had dared to pray. She looked at all the things God had done for her, 
And she looked at it all, and on her deathbed, she said, I wish I'd trusted Christ for more. I wish I'd prayed riskier prayers. I wish I had asked for bigger mountains. I wish I had taken scarier risks. I wish I had trusted him for more. She was born in 1891. She died in 1963. And honestly, guys, I, I've never known anybody who had a deep, risky, bold faith in God that led an easy, comfortable, chair-massaging, challenge-avoiding life. Because that chair doesn't build a faith worth having. It doesn't lead you into a life that's worth living. So is there any area of your life today God is calling you off the chair? Are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to say yes to God to play this crazy game of life on his terms and not on your own? Because one day you entered this world. That was a great day. And one day you're going to leave the world. And in between the first day and the last day, is the only life you ever have. So what are you going to do with your dash? For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.